You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1945th edition of the St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 7th of September 2023. The editor of this edition is Claire Mellor, the producer is Colin Holmes and your readers are Val Fletcher and Neil Keeley. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. And as always we commence with the headlines... Fraudster Farmer is arrested. Council's £320,000 temporary housing plans for refugees. Victim of fraudster calls for long sentence. Victims of a fraudster farmer may finally see justice after the wanted criminal was arrested at last. Wayne Parker was found guilty of fraud at Ipswich County Court in October but failed to return to the court to be sentenced. After a series of public appeals to track him down, he was arrested at a service station near Basingstoke last week. He has since been brought back to Suffolk and remanded in custody until a sentencing hearing later this month. One of his victims, Farmer James Wright, claims he lost £7,500 to Parker. He said, while we'll never get our money back, we can hope he faces a lengthy sentence. In late 2022, farmer James Wright lost the sum to Wayne Parker, who presented himself as a legitimate livestock owner, but refused to pay the invoice for bales of hay that Mr Wright had sold to him. With his wife six months pregnant at the time, Mr Wright said the ordeal was particularly distressing. Parker, a former Mildenhall man who was found guilty of fraud at Ipswich Crown Court in October 22, was arrested by police in Hampshire on Thursday after being stopped at a service station near Basingstoke. He has since been brought back to Suffolk and remanded by the Crown Court. Mr Wright said, It's good that Mr. That Wayne has been caught. He defrauded us while he was on bail. While we and the other victims will never get our money back, we can only hope that he will now face a lengthy sentence. Mr Wright previously spoke to this paper saying many people are, quote, let off the hook because their victims are too embarrassed to say anything. He said, it is embarrassing, yes, but when people don't talk about it, it's all doing is protecting these fraudsters. We often don't talk about fraud because of the shame involved, but it can happen to anyone. In total, Parker was found to have defrauded creditors out of £765,000. He issued cheques for thousands of pounds that bounced on accounts which only contained a few pennies or that were empty. Parker denied participating in a fraudulent business with intent to defraud creditors by incurring debts but was convicted after a three-week trial. Nadia Silva, prosecuting for Suffolk Trading Standards, claimed that Parker bought goods on credit and on the goodwill of suppliers and assured them he was a person of good standing who would pay what he owed. Parker was unable to attend his original court date as he was undergoing tests for suspected testicular cancer but failed to attend his sentencing on Ipswich Crown Court on February the 7th. 
In June, the former Mildenhall man had an appeal thrown out by a London judge after claiming his conviction was unsafe because a juror used a mobile phone during his hearing. A warrant was issued for his arrest by Ipswich County Court, with Suffolk trading standards making a series of appeals to locate him. Since going on the run, Parker has been known to use the dating site Match.com and has also been hiring cars in a bid, it is believed, to avoid detection by police. Suffolk Trading Standards said Parker had links to West London, with his last known address being in Feltham. However, he's carried out work across Suffolk, Norfolk, Cambridgeshire and Surrey. Previously, Mr Wright described the delays to his sentencing as a shocking failure of our justice system. Parker is due to be sentenced on September the 19th. Plans to spend £320,000 on temporary housing to resettle Afghans and Ukrainians have been revealed by West Suffolk Council. The purchase, made with the help of the government's £938,600 Local Authority Housing Fund, will be used initially for families leaving temporary hotel accommodation. The grant has been made available to fund 40% of the purchase, or £112,000, the maximum available for each unit, with the council picking up the remaining 60% of the bill at about £188,000. The authority hopes the new property will greatly help in the task of reducing the need for expensive bed and breakfast accommodation, retaining more money for other investments. In total, it is expected that the purchase will save around £35,000 in bed and breakfast costs each year. This comes as the Council continues to experience rising case numbers of families and individuals presenting as homeless as a result of the cost of living crisis. Questions have been raised as to what impact the purchase of the property would have on the state of the Council's finances. But Councillor Richard O'Driscoll, the Council's Cabinet Member for Housing, said the spending would have no impact on how services were delivered across the district. He added, the council maintains a fund to be used to seize on these opportunities, which means we are in a good position to bid and benefit from such national schemes. At the same time, it reduces the current financial pressure on the authority through the cost of bed and breakfast and supplies an income which means the housing can continue to be used when its current need finishes. Because the total spending is below the £500,000 threshold, this means approval can be made by the relevant portfolio holders and not have to go through a full council meeting. The council currently owns a mix of 36 units of temporary accommodation and although this purchase is aimed at Afghan and Ukrainian families, the temporary accommodation can also be used for general use. The proposal, which can be found on the Council's website, is an in-principle decision as the property has not yet been identified and has been sent to councillors who will have a chance to speak their mind before its decision on September the 20th. Now, uh, the editors asked me to describe a photograph I have in front of me. I'll read the article first and then try and describe it. The hottest temperatures of 2023 could be seen this week during a heat wave. 
The Met Office is predicting maximum temperatures of 32 degrees on Wednesday and Thursday, that's today, potentially matching the year's record of 32.2 in June. It comes as the UK Health Security Agency has issued a yellow alert across the whole of England, apart from the North East, between 2pm on Monday and 9pm on September the 10th. Heatwave criteria will likely be met in a number of places over the next couple of days, and for much of the UK it will feel, quote, very warm to hot, Rachel Ayers, senior meteorologist, said. And it is possible the highest temperatures of 2023 could be seen this month, with the current record standing at 32.2 on both June 10th and 25th. Miss Ayers said on Wednesday, mist and fog will clear once again with low cloud burning back to the coast through the morning, leaving a very warm or hot day. Temperatures will climb to 32 in central and southeast England. Thursday, another fine day after early mist and fog clears, temperatures will climb to 32 in central and southeast England. On Friday, most places will remain fine and dry with sunny spells. Now this picture, it shows a very large bird and, and the caption underneath says it is a Stellar's Sea Eagle. It's perched on a block, uh, I think it's tethered, uh, and it is trying to get at food which is encased in a block of ice. All I can say is I'm rather glad that it's nowhere near me. <laughs> Um, my article is about the B&M and possible Wilco deal. And although it's a national news, it also affects our local stores here. B&M has sealed a deal to buy up to 51 Wilco stores from administrators following the collapse of the rival discount chain. Wilco fell into administration last month with insolvency experts from PwC spending recent weeks seeking to hammer out a rescue deal for the historic retailer. Administrators have held talks with a raft of suitors, including HMV owner Doug Putman, in order to save Wilco's 400 stores and 12,500 jobs. On Tuesday, B&M European Value Retail said it has agreed to acquire up to 51 Wilco sites from the administrators in a deal worth up to £13 million. In a statement, B&M added, the consideration is fully funded from existing cash reserves and the acquisition is not expected to be conditional on any regulatory clearances. An update on the timing of these new store openings will be provided in the H1 Interim Results announcement on November the 9th. The B&M Group runs around 1,150 stores in the UK and France under the B&M and Heron brands. It is understood that the majority of the new stores are expected to rebrand as B&M. PwC remains in further talks regarding Wilco's remaining stores, brand and other assets. A 62-year-old woman who set light to her house in Bury St Edmunds after being told it would be repossessed will be sentenced in November after admitting arson. Before Ipswich Crown Court on Monday was Deborah Lumley Holmes of Cannon Street in Bury St Edmunds.
She denied arson with intent to endanger life, but admitted to a less serious offence of arson being reckless as to whether life would be endangered. Fire crews were called to Cannon Street in Bury St Edmunds at about 1.30pm on June the 4th to reports of a fire on the first floor of a home. The court heard that at the time of the offence Lumley Holmes was in financial difficulties due to her ill health and had been told her home would be repossessed. In her basis of plea, she said she had no friends or family and had, quote, foolishly started the fire as the, quote, quickest and easiest way out of the situation. Charles Myatt, for Lumley Holmes, said she hadn't intended to harm anyone else when she started the fire. Judge Emma adjourned sentence until November the 15th for a pre-sentence report and a psychiatric report and remanded Lumley Holmes in custody. Three people have been arrested by police investigating an armed assault and affray in Bury St Edmunds. Officers were called to Lake Avenue at 3pm on Tuesday to reports of a fight involving a group of people with at least one of them armed with a weapon, believed to be a hammer. A man aged in his 50s was taken to hospital and treated for a suspected fractured cheekbone and lacerations to his face. A number of police units were dispatched to the scene, including armed officers. A 43-year-old Sudbury man and a 16-year-old boy from Bury were arrested, both on suspicion of assault causing grievous bodily harm and possession of an offensive weapon. On Wednesday, a 46-year-old man from the town was arrested on suspicion of affray. All three were taken to the town's police investigation centre. Officers are treating this as an isolated incident and do not believe there is any cause for concern to the wider community. Anyone with information is asked to contact Bury St Edmunds Police Station, quoting reference 50486 stroke 23. Members from Bury Abbey Rotary Club were welcomed to a German town twinned with Bury St Edmunds earlier this month. The Rotary Club of Cavalier showed their UK counterparts around during their visit to the town, with which it has been linked since 1981. Bury Abbey members met Cavalier's Burgermeister, that's the Mayor, Dominic Pichler, at the Old Town Hall and were invited to sign the Gold Book of Cavalier, which has previously been signed by Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul II, King Charles and Angela Merkel. Ian Chadwick, Abbey Rotary President, said it was a real pleasure to be able to travel to our twin town of Cavalier and meet with our German Rotary colleagues. We were given a very warm welcome and the hospitality shown to us was fantastic. The whole trip was both enjoyable with a tour of the town and a chance to cycle in the countryside. I feel the visit has helped cement the relationships between the two clubs and the towns. At a party held for the Berry Group to meet members of Cavalier Rotary, Alan presented Margaret Versler Depa, Cavalier's Rotary President, with a linden wood carving of the martyrdom of St Edmund by Suffolk-based artist Clint Rose. 
lying close to the Dutch border between the rivers Maas and Rhine, Cavalier has a population of around 24,000. The twinning of the two towns came from existing facts in sorry, existing contacts in the two countries, mainly centred on the Royal Air Force stations at Honington and Laarbroek. And there's a photograph of a group of them standing under a sign which says Berry St. Edmunds Straße. That's street. Man who fell ill at Antarctic base rescued. An interesting article. Not in Berry St. Edmunds, of course. An Australian man who fell ill at a remote Antarctic base is returning home on an icebreaker ship following a daunting mission to rescue him, authorities said. The man was working at the Casey Research Station when he suffered from what authorities described as a developing medical condition that needed specialist assessment and care. The icebreaker RSV Noina left Australia last week and travelled south more than 1,800 miles, breaking through sea ice to reach a location 89 miles from the base, the Australian Antarctic Division said on Tuesday. Rob Clifton, the division's acting general manager of operations and logistics, said the first phase of the evacuation was performed safely and successfully and the ship is now on the return voyage to Hobart. The man is expected to arrive in Australia next week. Now I have a feature called A Lifelong Commitment to People with Sight Loss Passes 55-Year Milestone. And it's about Jeanette Spence, who has devoted her career to helping Suffolk people with impaired vision. And she spoke to Barbara Eels about her role. When Jeanette Spence qualified as a home teacher for the blind, one of the challenges she faced in her exam was making a perfect cane basket. Today, as she marks 55 years helping sight-impaired people in Suffolk, the service she has seen evolve over decades is a world away from the job she started in the late 1960s. Jeanette now works for Sensing Change, which provides a range of support to adults affected by loss of vision, hearing or both, on behalf of Suffolk County Council. Caroline Carr, Head of Services at Sensing Change, described her as an expert in the field of sight loss who had helped shape the organisation's strong reputation, adding, Her 55 years service is an amazing achievement. We all feel very honoured to be part of that. The service for those losing their sight has shifted from teaching handicrafts and braille to enabling them to live safely and make the most of the vision they have left. The overarching thing now is safety in the home and in the community, said Jeanette, whose current role is Vision Rehabilitation Officer. She has never been tempted to swap jobs. I like working with people and seeing the outcome you get for the person, seeing them regain their independence. It might be something quite small, someone who is not able to do things independently or safely in the home or outside can now do it. It's very satisfying. I've met some really interesting people. The majority are older, but not always. We also help young people who have to face a lot of trauma in their lives. You have got to understand people and the emotional and psychological impact of sight loss. When a consultant says, there is nothing more we can do, 
I'm going to register you as blind. It's like being hit on the head with a mallet. We can refer people for counselling. It might be many years since Jeanette had to call on her basket-weaving skills, but that exam piece stood the test of time. It looks like new and serves as her sewing basket. Not, she readily confesses, that she does much sewing, admitting that's probably why it survived so long. For the past 44 years, she has lived in Sudbury with her husband, Colin, an ex-chairman of Suffolk County Council, who also had a long local government career in education and social work. She grew up in Essex before moving to Little Waldingfield in Suffolk with her parents, Dolly and Sid Denea, in the mid-1960s. I went to a secondary modern school, left when I was 16 and went to work in a tax office in London, she said. Then I thought I'd like to do something different and applied for teach training college, but in the interim I got a job as an unqualified teacher at Tudor Road School in Sudbury. I decided teaching wasn't really for me. Then I saw a job advertised, Home Teacher for the Blind. She applied to the Southern Region Association for the Blind for a place at college in London. The qualification I had then was so different to the job I do now, she said. That course involved teaching people handicrafts. I learned four crafts and how to teach them, including rush seating and cane work. We also did touch typing, braille and another reading system called Moon. I qualified and got a job with the old West Suffolk County Council. I was based in Manor House in Bury St Edmunds. More training followed to teach outdoors and mobility orientation skills. That meant going back to college and learning how it felt to live with sight loss. We had to wear a sleep mask and experience what it was like to move through the environment being unable to see. We did the training on the streets of London with all the traffic, noise and crowds, with a sighted trainer and also had to go on the underground. When Suffolk County Council was created in 1974, she became part of the disability team based at Shire Hall in Bury and progressed to the role of senior rehabilitation officer responsible for other workers and their development. Meanwhile, she and Colin had met at Sudbury Baptist Church, where they are still regular worshippers. They married in 1970 and celebrate their 53rd wedding anniversary on September the 5th. Their son Martin was born in 1980. He went to Oxford University, where he met his wife Molly, and is now a professor of history at Cornerstone University in Michigan, with three children aged 10, 8 and 6. For many years, Jeanette visited people in their homes to assess their needs, mostly in the west of the county, from Mildon Hall, Newmarket and Haverhill, to Bury, Sudbury and sometimes Hadley. She also got involved in a bowls club for visually impaired players. They played every week at Haverhill Bowls Club and used to play sighted teams and win, she recalled. Technology brought another big change in the way cases are recorded. When I started, it was pen and paper in a little notebook. Now it's all computerised. In the job, people don't just have sight problems. They can have long-term health conditions, disabilities or mental health issues or learning difficulties. 
It's not a package you transfer from one person to another. An assessment is based on the person's needs. You get the common thread of sight loss, but everyone is different. We can never make assumptions. We put in a rehabilitation plan to enable people with sight loss to be independent and confident and safe within their home and in the community. She says that outside, electric bikes and cars are a challenge for anyone with sight loss because they're so quiet, especially on roads where there is no controlled crossing. In the home, important things include kitchen skills and safety, improving lighting and providing magnifiers. We don't teach Braille or Moon anymore because technology has revolutionised communications. We can now get so many devices that can, for instance, read things to you. It's moving on all the time. We keep up contact with people as long as it's needed. For instance, with mobility, sometimes as confidence builds they might want to go further and to do more. We make a rehabilitation plan so they know, and we know, the direction of travel. We tell people to come back to us if their sight changes. They can also signpost people to other sources of help like benefits and charities like Guide Dogs or Suffolk Sight whose services include technology support and social activities. A lot of our referrals come from eye clinics, but we take them from any source, said Jeanette. We work with people to make the maximum use of their remaining vision. We have to know about all the different eye conditions. Most people have a degree of vision, even if registered as severely sight impaired. One of the most important things is the right lighting. It can make a real difference. She is a big fan of audio books and talking newspapers because while magnifiers and different techniques might enable people to read a certain amount, it would not be reading for pleasure. Jeanette currently works one day a week from home, making triage phone calls to anywhere in the county and also attends team meetings. When we get a referral, we ring people up to get a feel for what they need. I triage calls, assessing which are the most urgent. It's all about risk, safety and independence. I share the job with a colleague who also does one day a week. I would ask things like, how do you get on in the kitchen? Can you see the cooker controls? And have you burnt yourself? Or find out if they've had a fall? Then we record it on the case notes of the person and notify the senior who would decide the priorities. Referrals are coming in all the time. There is quite a huge demand and I think the better service you provide, the more demand you get. Word gets around. It has been a very interesting career. At times it's challenging, but I wouldn't have wanted to do anything else. And I have made some good friends through my job said Jeanette. Caroline said, Jeanette's colleagues have enormous respect for her, both professionally and personally, and she is a very highly valued member of staff. Jeanette has acquired a huge amount of knowledge, skills and experience, and is considered by all who know her to be an expert in the field of sight loss. She has mentored, supervised and supported staff 
from students to newly qualified and experienced workers, and always strives to pass her valued knowledge and skills onto others. Over the years, Jeanette has played a huge part in the development of services to people with sight loss in Suffolk. Her commitment to her work is unquestionable and she goes above and beyond to provide a high quality service. Now I move on to letters. And our first one is from a John Worsley via email. Town traders' costs are just too high. In her letter of August the 18th, Frances May gave the real reason why so many shops are closing. Cost. When will the councils learn that things are too expensive in this town? I suppose the only shops left in abundance are restaurants and food outlets as people have got to eat. Wake up before Berry St Edmunds joins the long queue of empty premises. My next is from Anna, branch director of Bury St Edmunds and West Suffolk Samaritans. With World Suicide Prevention Day on Sunday the 10th of September, it's a timely opportunity to remind readers that everyone has what it takes to help someone experiencing suicidal thoughts. It's great that talking about mental health is no longer seen as taboo, but suicide can still be a difficult topic to broach, especially if you're struggling. As a Samaritan volunteer, it isn't unusual for me to ask a caller, are you feeling suicidal? It may seem abrupt if you are not used to it, but asking the question directly to someone you are worried about allows them a potentially life-changing chance to open up about what they are really feeling, helping them get the support they need. While the subject might feel uncomfortable or daunting at first, research shows that you won't make things worse or give someone the idea. Ultimately, you could help save a life. Matt Williams works for Marie Curie and he writes, and his headline is, Don't have worries about energy costs. The news that energy prices will drop from October will be good news for many. But for your readers who are living with a terminal illness, we know that many will still be worried about how they will pay their bills. Dying people have been experiencing a cost of living crisis long before the energy price cap skyrocketed. They typically need to keep their houses warmer than average and run vital medical equipment which reduces their pain, keeps them comfortable and in some instances alive. My colleagues are constantly supporting people living with a terminal illness or their families who are worrying about how to pay their latest gas or electric bill. In partnership with the UK Gas Distribution Networks, that's SGN, Cadent, Northern Gas Networks and Wales and West Utilities, we have now recruited two energy support officers who are waiting on the end of a telephone to provide support and information around energy bills and the cost of living including information on benefits, supplier-specific support, grants and energy efficiency updates. Nobody should spend the end of their life worried about the cost of energy. If readers need help, then please ask them to call the Marie Curie support line. It's free and the number is 0800 090 2309. I'll repeat that, 
0800 090 and ask to speak to our energy support officers. Now I have a, a, a rhyming protest against the beer festival. The cathedral's been filled full of barrels of beer, bringing crowds of young men who were full of good cheer. Whilst we all know that God loves a cheerful giver, remember drink also is bad for your liver. If 10 million of us have then too much to drink, let these UK statistics now cause us to think. Adult deaths linked to booze up by 89% in just the last 20 years. We have to lament. Drink is the biggest killer of under 50s, driving the NHS down on its knees. 82% of the addicted untreated, they and their families abandoned, defeated. So please do not let alcohol cloud how you think. Christ said, all who are thirsty come to me and drink. Is the church promoting the wrong kind of spirit, or am I just out of touch and need to get with it? If you only come to church to drink fermentation, you will miss Jesus Christ and his joyful salvation. Now that name and address is supplied, so we don't know who wrote that, uh, but it does quote that the committee chair, uh, Public Accounts Committee, Labour's Dame Meg Hiller, called for the government, quote, to act decisively on this most harmful intoxicant. No, I've got some others to read. Sorry. Cathedral made us all feel so welcome. Again, what a triumph the camera, beer and cider festival held at the cathedral was. People of all ages and beliefs were made so welcome and valued, with the event largely run by unpaid volunteers, happy to donate their time to the charities of their choice. Yes, I am aware that a few are against the event location, believing drink is thine enemy. Forgetting the monks brewed large volumes of beer and wine to be consumed on the premises. Perhaps these antis will publicly give their reasonings for objecting, thankfully unsuccessful at halting the festival. That was from Simon Harding. And uh, the last one is from Brian Davis of Bury St Edmunds. And he says, I have to say that since leaving both Devon and Cornwall behind at the tender age of 16 to join the army, it has not been my good fortune to return. But when it comes to the taste of a Cornish pasty, my long-term memory serves me very well. And I can categorically state that the new venture, Cornish Bakery in Buttermarket, Berry, has managed to get the closest to the taste and texture I so well remember and relished. A welcome addition to the diversity of shops in Berry. Uh, there we are, there's our letters for this week, and now we're going back to the general news. A district councillor has expressed her concerns over the state of Berry St Edmunds waterways after footage showed discharge entering a river. Even though the discharge was not pollution, but rather clean water from a burst water main repair work, West Suffolk councillor Julia Wakelam said she is worried about the many times when sewerage or agricultural waste has been discharged into the town's rivers. Her concerns come after Mark Cordell, our Bury St Edmunds Business Improvement District CEO, shared the video to X, that's formerly known as Twitter, 
showing a section of the River Lark near Ram Meadow looking murky. He said, It looked horrible. It looked like very milky coffee. And towards Tesco it was all discoloured, and in the other direction it wasn't. So basically the flow of the river has taken the discoloration downstream. It just didn't look right to me. Anglin Water said it had been repairing a burst water main. Councillor Wakelam said, The real issue here is a much bigger one, and that is to do with the overloading of our river rays with sewage, with the water authorities not investing sufficiently in their infrastructure. The result is that they routinely let sewage and untreated water into our rivers. The River Lark and the Linnet are two of only 200 chalk streams in the world. I just think it's outrageous. This is a precious natural resource. It supports species that we need because our biodiversity is shrinking and the water belongs to us all. She has called on Anglin Water to take action. Anglin Water can upgrade their sewerage works they can stop allowing surface water to drain into sewers. There should be separate surface water drainage in new developments, she added. According to Top of the Poops, now that is a website which analyses and maps the annual sewerage data released by the regulators. The River Lark was polluted by sewerage 32 times in 2022, lasting 87 hours. A spokesperson for Anglin Water said, Due to a burst water main in the area, clean water entered a surface water drain which led to the River Lark. The main has now been repaired, but unfortunately the excavation needed to complete the work led to some localised discoloration in the river further downstream, which has now returned to normal. The Ukrainian community in Bury St Edmunds and the surrounding area and their supporters turned out in force for a parade and tree planting marking 32 years of Ukrainian sovereignty. Ukraine declared independence from the Soviet Union on August 24, 1991 and this event is commemorated every year on the same day. Bury is said to have a hundreds-strong Ukrainian community, including many who left the country after the Russian invasion last February. The parade started at the Corn Exchange before moving into the Abbey Gardens. However, the shadow of the ongoing war hung over the celebration, with many present expressing strong feelings about national independence. One of the attendees, Anastasia Rulakova, said... We are a very young country. Lots of European countries got their liberty a long time ago. That's why they have a good life, sustainability, a good economy. We're very young. Unfortunately, even with independence, we still border some difficult neighbours, as we've seen. For us, it's a very big day because we're very proud to be Ukrainian. We're very proud of all our ancestors who had a dream to free their whole country. Now it's come true. She added, we're very thankful for everything your country and community has given us because you have given us a lot of support. Ground staff had set aside a space for the planting of a tree along a footpath behind the Abbey Gardens. 
this, organisers said, would serve as a permanent testament to the Ukrainian cause. Those gathering to plant the tree were addressed by Canon Philip Banks from St Edmundsbury Cathedral. Dedicating the tree, he told participants, this is an alder tree. It's the kind of tree that is common to the waterways of Ukraine, just as it is here in England. So it's a mark of our solidarity with you. One of the organisers of the event, Alina Sabat, cast the first of soil as the tree was planted. Rounding off the proceedings, she said, we're not just celebrating independence today, we're fighting for independence. A relief road has been proposed as part of a 485 house development in Bury St Edmunds. Where Suffolk Council received a hybrid planning application for a relief road, including new junction works with New Market Road, Wesley Road and Hill Road, which is in Wesley. The plan submitted by Pigeon Investment Management Limited on behalf of Pigeon Berry West Limited also include the construction of drainage basins adjacent to the relief road and the provision of pedestrian and cycle connections from the relief road onto New Market Road. The proposal for 485 homes on land off New Market Road was first submitted in 2019 but concerns were raised around the access roads, which included roundabout access onto New Market Road and a part relief road onto Fornham Lane, as well as the green buffer and the total number of homes included. In a new application, the applicant has made changes to the planned relief road, including roundabout site access on New Market Road and Wesley Road, as well as a new priority junction from the Relief Road onto Hill Road. The site, located on the western edge of Bury St Edmunds, just 200 metres south of Junction 42 of the A14, would be complete with open space, play areas and landscaping. Drainage basins would be constructed next to the Relief Road and there would be a new pedestrian and cycle route onto Oliver Road and cycle connections onto New Market Road. The development will include up to 146 affordable houses. A public consultation is being undertaken in regard to this scheme. Residents have already expressed their concerns that the roundabout on Newmarket Road would cause congestion, would be located too close to the current Oliver Road junction and could create additional traffic on Wesley Road and Newmarket Road. Now I have three items of local village news. Barrow Post Office has opened at Matt's Food, Wine and More in The Street. The branch relocated due to its postmaster resigning and its previous branch in Church Road closing on July the 19th. There is a post office serving point at the retail counter of the convenience store. The same products and services are available as before. Opening hours are Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm, and Saturday, 9am to 3pm. Now, Stowe Market. Suffolk County Council has received planning proposals for an extension to Stowe Market Library.
With this proposal, the library will be able to accommodate an increased influx of people. The application, which was validated this week, includes an 84-square-metre extension of the existing premises and the internal refurbishment of its facilities. And finally, in Elmswell, a 10-year-old has donated his hair to charity four years after he started growing it for the cause. Teddy Harridge from Elmswell raised around £380 for the Little Princess Trust. The charity produces wigs for people with cancer or who are otherwise experiencing hair loss for medical reasons. He attended On Point Barbers on Station Road Industrial Estate in the village to get his hair cut. Yes, very brave. Uh, My article now is about Wattisham, a little bit further afield. A new look training centre for Suffolk firefighters has opened after a 1.3 million renovation. A 1.3 million pounds renovation, I should say. Suffolk Fire and Rescue Service, that is SFRS for short, training centre at Wattisham Flying Station near Stowmarket, was officially opened by John Lacey, Chief Fire Officer at Suffolk Fire and Rescue, and Colonel Toby Moore, Station Commander at Wattisham Flying Station. The 17-acre site, which has been used as firefighting training facility since 2011, now has additional classrooms and office space. Firefighters will train in the facility, which simulates real-life incidents the crews may face. This is an exciting new chapter for the training centre, which has been at based at ah, which has been based at Wattisham now for over a decade, said Mr. Lacey. The new training complexes allow us to give new firefighters the best training possible in a way that is realistic yet less harmful to the environment, through us not having to use as much carbon-based burning material as before. The centre previously housed the Bloodhound missile system from the Cold War. Now, this is uh, another article from Lee Andrew Pierce, Community Engagement Officer for Bury St Edmunds. It's been a busy but productive few weeks since my last column, and of course we had the Suffolk show. It was great to see so many people there, and a special mention to our police cadets for their sterling work making hundreds of fingerprint key rings for the children and occasional adult on both days. A well-deserved mention to our cybercrime team too, who had their first outing to the show. They had a near constant flow of people lapping up cyber security and safe room activities along with the handouts and freebies. Keeping with the theme of cadets and our amazing emergency service cadets based in Bury St Edmunds, along with volunteer police cadets, helped the race for life in Nowton Park. Hundreds of runners braved the heat to complete one of the three running routes for cancer research. All who finished were given a medal and energy-boosting snack by the cadets at the finishing line. Elsewhere, in terms of tackling crime officers, executed a misuse of drugs warrant at an address in Banks Walk in Bury. 
This was following repeated reports of antisocial behaviour and drug use at the address. As a result of the warrant, four people at the property were arrested for several drug-related offences with cannabis and suspected Class A drugs located and seized from the address. An amount for cash was also uh, seized by officers under the Proceeds of Crime Act. Suspects have been bailed pending further inquiries and consultation with the Crime Prosecution Service on proposed charges. Meanwhile, at a property on St Andrew Street south in the town, a community protection notice, that's a CPN, was issued to occupants who were allowed a visitor to the address to cause prolonged and repeated nuisance to other residents and people walking past the address. The team also issued a Section 8 of the Misuse of Drugs Act notice to the occupants. The notice makes the occupiers aware that there is a criminal liability on them if they allow the premises to be used for certain drug-related activity. This can be from smoking cannabis at the address to producing a controlled drug to supplying a controlled drug. The displaying of the Section 8 notice on the door also helps prevent, in some cases, a vulnerable occupant from being cuckooed cuckooed by county lines dealers. The notice tells dealers that this address is known to the police and subject to regular and random welfare checks. The local housing association also issued notice of intended possession to the occupants who have also been given an acceptable behaviour contact to adhere to in the interim. A new greetings card, balloon and party wear business is to open in Bury St Edmunds tomorrow. Family-run independent retailer, Cards Direct, will be the latest shop to open in the Ark Shopping Centre, following the opening of Slim Chickens last week. Cards Direct has more than 50 shops across England and also sells gifts and gift packaging. Alan Hassel, Ark Centre Manager, said... We're delighted to welcome Cards Direct to the Ark family. Their marvellous offering fills a much-needed requirement for our customers since the unfortunate departure of Paper Chase earlier this year. We know they will contribute to the vibrancy of the shopping centre and the local community. Terry Cleaver, area manager for Cards Direct, said... Having been growing steadily for over a decade and this year receiving the honour of being the only new entrant into Brandview's most loved retail brands listing, we've been targeting expansion across East Anglia and the southeast of England. The new team look forward to helping the people of Bury celebrate life's special occasions. Now this article is by local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor and he talks about why Hellfire Corner got its name. How Berry's Hellfire Corner came to be so dubbed was that the Reverend Charles Phipps heir, the future vicar of St Peter's Church before it was consecrated in 1858, used to hold open-air services in the nearby water meadows preaching hellfire and damnation to those who didn't repent. 
Memories of this corner with St Andrew Street South and Westgate Street were kindly given to me by Barbara Clements, nay Curry, who lived at 31 Westgate Street until she was 16 years old. She said, The house was old with a stone ram on the top and beams inside. There were gas mantles to see by, no inside water, and a shared outside toilet. The houses were demolished due to redevelopment. When the farmers brought their cattle up out Westgate to the Wednesday market, we would run out of our backyard to see them. Opposite was a blacksmith's forge, and we would watch the horses being shod. In the mornings, the corporation's heavy horses came up the west from Holy Water Meadows to their yard in King's Road. They were taken back again at 5.30. We had a, quote, midnight coalman, a Mr. Sharman, who would have candles in lamps at the back of his dray. Also, Les Freeman, a rag-and-bone man that bought our rabbit skins for sixpence, just enough for the cinema. Several shops were on Westgate Street, including Furzland and Maltby. They had lovely fruit you could buy, some for a penny. Next door was a barber called Freddie Caldwell. When they pulled his place down, they took the mirrors out and put them in the Theatre Royal. Then there was a sweet shop. The man who had it, Darky Double, ran a bookies around the back, not exactly legal in those days. Sometimes an old tramp would knock on our door for some water to put in his old tin can as he made his way up to the Spike, the workhouse in Mill Road, which later became St Mary's Geriatric Hospital. They used to give him an old straw mattress to sleep on. Another old character who lived at the top of Out Westgate was Muggy Warren. He wore Wellington boots all the time. Most days he would walk to the great Wellneatham church to keep an eye on it, but he never spoke a word. As children we played a lot up on Hardwick Heath and often saw the prisoners of war marching about. Hasn't she got a good memory? The, the woman who told all that to Martin Taylor. I read, I read that in the paper and I thought what a good memory she had got. Because she's obviously more than 80 to be telling that story. Good for her. And I've got these like a memory down memory lane. Something that happened 10 years ago, happened 25 years ago and 50 years ago. So 10 years ago, heading is estate is overlooked, unloved and forgotten. A group of mums and a councillor were calling for improvements on an estate in 2013, saying it had been overlooked, unloved and forgotten. Suffolk County Councillor Sarah Stamp, who was elected to the Hardwick Division in May, was pushing for the authority to invest £36,000 in a new play area on the Horringer Court Estate in Bury St Edmunds. Something that came up during the elections was that there really is not enough facilities in general on the estate, she said. I feel that the County Council has overlooked it in favour of other areas and I'm really keen to improve the facilities they have got there. There are a lot of children on the estate, but they have nowhere to go. And that was 10 years ago, now 25 years ago, heading 750 new homes get go-ahead. 
a massive development of 750 new homes was to be built on the Morton Hall estate. The controversial development was given the go-ahead by borough councillors in 1996, no, 1998, despite protests from residents and some councillors. In a heated meeting at St Edmundsbury Borough Council, Councillor Trevor Beckwith, Labour, Eastgate, described the decision as bizarre and said he was worried the development could clog up roads with heavy traffic. How far east are we going to go before we say enough is enough? I have many serious concerns over this development and I think this is a step too far. And 50 years ago, heading Butts becoming sports centre for the town. A 70-acre sports and recreation area for Bury St Edmunds could have been established at the Butts in 1973. And as a first step towards it, the Borough Parks Committee decided to recommend the Town Council to buy 55 acres of land there. At the same time, the Council would also be recommended to seek a compulsory purchase order. The Council already owned 14 acres of Butts land and the committee was suggesting it should buy the remainder as soon as possible. Several different owners were involved. The idea of turning the area into a recreational district for the town had been in mind for some years. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Claire, Colin, Val That's and me. Neil, it's goodbye. Bye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.